Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys. Um, as the kids make their way out, uh, will the rest of you please open up your Bibles and make your way to the book of 1 Timothy, okay? 1 Timothy. Uh, last week, we began our study of the book of 1 Timothy by looking at a lot of the background information to the book of 1 Timothy. We looked at the, the who, the uh, what, when, where, why, and how of the book of 1 Timothy, uh, hoping that it would really set the stage for our study of this book as we you know, continue our march through the uh, New Testament. Now, after a detailed introduction to the book, we then looked at the introduction in the book uh, that Paul wrote to Timothy in verses 1 and 2. And uh, in our study last week, we noted Paul's work as an apostle, as one being sent out on a mission with a message from God. And now we too have been sent out by God to go out and share God's message of the gospel to the world around us, just like Paul. We noted Paul's relationship with Timothy, how Timothy was considered a true son in the faith, one who had been discipled by Paul, one who really caught the vision of ministry that Paul had and, and ran with it. We all know, also noted Paul's proclamation, that threefold proclamation of grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy had, um, excuse me, Timothy was given those uh, blessings, proclaimed those blessings upon him by Paul. And we also reminded ourselves just how important those are for each and every one of us. We all need the grace of God, right? God's unmerited, unearned favor. Okay? We need it. Okay? We need uh, the mercy of God, his compassion and his pity upon us. And we need the peace of God, which is made available through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our way into chapter 1 of 1 Timothy by looking at the next section of the chapter from verses 3 through 11, and a message that I've entitled, Confronting False Teachers. Okay, Confronting False Teachers. I'd like to invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word. I'm going to read through our text this morning from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, that's okay. Just do your best to follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. So Paul continues the opening of this letter to his son in the faith with the following in verse 3. He says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not, is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this opportunity that you've given to us to, to come uh, into this place, to open up your word, and, and Lord, to allow your word to speak to us. Um, Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would lead us and guide us as we uh, go through these uh, scriptures, Lord, that we would understand them, that we would apply them to our hearts and our lives, that we'd understand what's going on uh, there in first century uh, Ephesus, uh, there at the church that uh, Timothy was pastoring. But Lord, we also might understand how those truths uh, apply to us and uh, what you'd have for us and what you're speaking to us today. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit desires to speak to us, your church. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may have a seat. Now, in the opening 
of our text, we read about how Paul had to urge Timothy to remain in Ephesus. And it would seem that after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, he and Timothy once again went out on a fourth missionary journey. It's not recorded for us in the book of Acts because the book of Acts ends with Paul still in Rome, uh, still awaiting his imprisonment to be finalized. Uh, And so Acts doesn't record after that. But We get the sense here that they were going on another missionary journey. They were checking in on the churches they had planted and bringing the gospel to even new places. And based upon our text, the idea seems to be that Paul and Timothy had come into the area of Ephesus, and after seeing how things were going there, Paul felt the need to leave Timothy there in Ephesus to deal with some issues while he continued into Macedonia. When Paul departed and headed into Macedonia, he urged Timothy to stay behind in Ephesus. The word urge, it carries with it the idea of of exhorting someone or admonishing someone uh, to do something. And it would seem that perhaps Timothy wasn't so keen on staying in Ephesus. Perhaps there was even some reluctance on the part of Timothy when Paul suggested, hey, Timothy, why don't you stay here in Ephesus while I continue to go on into Macedonia? And so based upon what we do know about the situation from reading within uh, the Scriptures, we can understand some hesitation on the part of Timothy. Ephesus, you guys, we know this, we talked about this last week, but it wasn't an easy place to minister in. It was the largest city of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was a place of commerce, a place of great wealth, and a place of great idolatry and immorality was rampant. Timothy was just a young man from the countryside. He came from a small colony called Lystra that was slightly settled and somewhat secluded in the southwest mountainside of Asia Minor. Hey, we can understand perhaps some hesitancy, hesitancy, excuse me, hesitancy on the behalf of Timothy. Maybe even some fear of it, you know, just being too big of a task for him. You know, he was more of a of a country uh, boy, kind of grew up in a small town, and here he's in this huge city, and uh, there's a lot of stuff happening, a lot of stuff going on, and so we can understand maybe some. Uh, hesitancy. Not only was the big uh, city much different than what he was used to, but the church there, well, they were going through some difficulties. It wasn't like, hey, there's this church that's going and it's going great and everybody loves the Lord and it's just, you know, you'll just step right in and pastor there and it'll be wonderful. No, this church was going through some difficulties, okay? This church had some false teachers that had risen up from within the ranks, okay? And these, uh, False teachers were presumably older than Timothy and bolder than Timothy because we read throughout Paul's letters, uh, Paul encouraging him to be bold, encouraging him not to despise his youth, you know, and so we see these exhortations over and over again, and so the sense is the people that he's probably coming against were older. Maybe they were a little bit more uh, declarative and, and uh, demonstrative in, in their teaching and, and in their proclamations. And so we can understand, again, some hesitancy. How could he uh, stand up to these seniors who were so much more outspoken than he? Also consider the fact of the shoes that he's trying to fill. Paul spent three years there in Ephesus, and God did amazing and miraculous things in and through him. We talked about some of the things that were happening, people getting healed all over the place, and uh, amazing, incredible things. Paul was uh, respected and admired by many, and so the idea of coming in and trying to be a pastor to them after they had Paul for their uh, pastor for three years, that, that would be quite intimidating, right? Perhaps he would feel the pressure to try and measure up to Paul's standard or to be more than what he felt he could be. I think add into the mix that Timothy, you know, we know that he spent a good amount of time in many of the churches in Macedonia as well. I'm sure he wanted to go and see his fellow brothers and sisters in those churches just as much as Paul did. 
He had spent a good chunk of time with Paul during his imprisonment in Rome, and they finally had a chance to go visit all their brothers and sisters from the various churches that had helped, uh, they had helped plant during Paul's second and third missionary journey. You know, and so maybe Timothy had a little bit of uh, a FOMO, right? A fear of missing out on, on all the reunions and all the testimonies of all that God was doing in and through the churches there in Macedonia, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea. These were places that Timothy was very intricately involved in. And so when he says, hey, you stay here in Ephesus, I'm going to go on to Macedonia, we can could, we could understand. Timothy's like, wait, wait, I, I, I want to go with you, right? There were all sorts of possibilities as to why Timothy needed a, a little extra urging on behalf of Paul to stay there in Ephesus. But despite all the potential objections and the fears Timothy may have had, he obviously did as Paul urged him to, and he did remain there in Ephesus to do the work of the ministry as directed by Paul and the Lord. And to me, I just wanted to bring that out because it's something that I'm extremely grateful for. I'm grateful for people like Timothy who despite all the potential objections and, and reasons for why maybe they shouldn't do the work of the ministry, they are yielded to and open to the work God's wanting to do in and through them. You know, it is often those who feel unqualified, those who feel unprepared, okay, or overwhelmed, it's often those whom God chooses to use for His glory. Those are the kinds of people God often uses, the foolish things of this world, Right? Those who know and realize just how desperately they need the Lord to help them do the work and to do the ministry. It's actually those who come with, with their church resume in hand and they think that they are God's gift to the world and to the church. Those who feel like they can just measure up and they're so self-reliant in their giftings. Those are usually the ones that you really need to worry about because those are the ones that end up having to go through a lot of humbling. And they need to go through a lot of breaking before God will use them mightily. And it's my opinion that the church needs more Timothys. Okay? We need more people willing to step up and fill an opportunity to serve while trusting and depending upon God's strength and God's spirit to do the work in us and through us and not who are dependent upon their own strengths and their own abilities to think, yeah, I can do this, but saying, Lord, I'm willing <laughs> It's not my strength. I don't know if I really, you know, am passionate about these things. I think I'd rather be with you in Macedonia, but there's a need here, and I'm willing to meet that need. I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to make myself available to minister to your people. And I think we just need more people like that. We need more people like that in the church. Paul had a very specific mission that he wanted Timothy to address right off the bat. So let's read about it, verses 3 and 4. He says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Paul's mission for Timothy was that he charge some within the church who were spreading false doctrine. The word charge here uh, in verse 3 is a military term. It's the word that's used to describe what a superior officer would pass along to his soldiers. It is a command. It is an order to follow. Paul wanted Timothy to be assertive, to be bold in his confrontation of these false teachers. Paul was very passionate about this issue. It was something that he had warned the elders of the church about prior to this when he visited them at the end of his third missionary journey about six to eight years prior to this account that we read of in 1 Timothy. We read about it in Acts chapter 20. If you want, you could turn there, but we'll have the verses up here on the TV. Paul had called the Ephesian elders to come visit him in Miletus as he passed by the area on ship on his way ultimately to Jerusalem. And when he addressed them, he reminded them saying, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, 
that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. You guys, for three solid years, night and day, Paul had warned these elders in the church with tears about this very thing, that they needed to be on the lookout for false teachers amongst themselves from within the church that would rise up and try to pull people to themselves, that pull people away from Christ and the simplicity of the gospel. And though Paul had warned them, it would seem that what he feared had come upon them. And it started to take root, causing all sorts of problems for the church. And so Paul tells Timothy that he has to be bold, okay? He has to be assertive. He must charge these people. He must command them, order them to stop their destructive behavior. This charge that Paul wanted Timothy to give to these false teachers was based upon two things that they needed to stop doing. Number one, they were to stop teaching any other doctrine. Now, the idea is that they were not to teach any other doctrine than what they had previously received from Paul. You see, Paul came and he poured into them for three years, right? Declaring to them the whole counsel of God. Paul shared the simplicity of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. He laid out all the basic tenets of the Christian faith. They had been given a great foundation to build upon, based upon God's word, the whole counsel of God. But evidently, some within the church, they rose up declaring and teaching a different gospel, a different doctrine. Now, this wasn't just a new way to teach the same doctrine. Okay? This was a completely different doctrine than what they had received. Just like in the book of Galatians, where Paul spoke of how the church had turned to a different gospel, which was not another gospel, but a perversion of the gospel of Christ. These false teachers were teaching doctrine that wasn't another form of doctrine that complemented the doctrine that Paul taught, but a completely different doctrine from what Paul was teaching and had taught to this church for three years. And so they were to stop teaching any other doctrine. And number two, they were to stop giving heed to fables and endless genealogies. The word fables can also be translated as myths. Maybe your translation reads that way. These were fabrications of their own making that came from their own minds, and they were not based at all in any sort of reality. Instead of teaching the people the simple truth of the word of God, okay, they turned to entertaining stories and fables that had no basis in reality. On top of that, they would spend tons of time teaching about genealogies. Now, these genealogies uh, were not treated uh, as they should have been, as just historical documents, but instead, they were subjected to a highly symbolic interpretive scheme. You know, names and, and dates and places that were mentioned in genealogies, well, they were supposedly filled with all sorts of, of hidden meanings and hidden messages that became the focus of these false teachers. And it led to a type of doctrine that was reserved only for the you know, super enlightened, the super spiritual, those who would take the time to figure out and piece together all the hidden clues to discover the hidden messages that were contained in these genealogies. But you guys, it was all just things that were based on fabrications. They weren't based in reality. And the byproduct of these false teachers teaching different doctrine and fables and endless genealogies was that it caused division and disputes among the body of Christ. Instead of bringing edification and building one another up, the fruit of these false teachers was nothing more than a bunch of people arguing and fighting over things that really didn't matter. And don't we see that still happening today? <laughs> Right? So many people in the church are fighting and arguing over things that really, in the long run, really don't matter. We see so many churches 
and denominations that have turned away from the simple teaching of God's word. And instead, they've sought after ways to entertain the people. The church exchanged proper instruction with popular entertainment. Churches have gone to fables and storytelling, abandoning the simple truths of the word of God, thinking that God's word's no longer relevant or that we need to update it. We need to make it more modern or that we need to water it down and make it more palatable for today's day and age. And the result we see is that the emphasis in churches is not building the body up through edification, but simply building the numbers up for self-glorification. Churches are focused more on building their numbers up than they are on building the body up. They want to fill seats, and so they resort to all sorts of different ways to get people to come, to entertain them. And the result is that you get a church that is a mile wide, but only an inch deep. They have no substance, no maturity, no understanding of the basic doctrines that are found in the Word of God. You get a church filled with a bunch of people who don't know God's Word because they haven't been taught God's Word, and they eventually leave the church being disillusioned and disappointed. Listen, you guys, we need to stick to the simple teaching of God's Word, okay? We don't need to come up with new and creative ways to spin it or to teach it, to make it more palatable, okay? To make it more exciting, okay? God's Word is powerful. God's Word is active. God's Word is living. It will accomplish that which it is sent forth to do. We don't need to repackage it, okay? We just need to release it and let it go, okay? And let it do that which God wants to do. And to let it have its way in us. When we stick to God's word and the simple teaching of it, the body of Christ is edified. The body of Christ is built up and it grows not just in number, but in depth. We grow in our understanding of God. We grow in our understanding of his word and how it applies to our everyday lives. May we be a church and a people who never grow weary of the simple teaching of God's word. (laughs) May we not come looking to be entertained, okay? We're thinking, oh, I've heard this one before, right? Look, the message hasn't changed in 2,000 years, and it's not going to, okay? We need to stick to the simple teaching of God's word. Let's continue on. Paul gave this command to Timothy to boldly come against these false teachers. And in verse 5, he tells us the purpose of this command. Let's read it together. Verse 5, he says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. You see, the purpose of Paul's commandment to Timothy to have him order that these false teachers stop spreading these teachings was all based upon love. The end goal, the the, the purpose of it was the love of God. You see, Paul wasn't telling Timothy to make them stop because he was jealous of them or because they were getting a crowd of people and maybe Paul felt inferior. It wasn't anything like that, right? Where he's like, oh, no, I'm worried about these people, right? And the, the clout that they have, you know, no. He was concerned about the love of God. He did what he did. He commanded Timothy to make sure he charged them because of love. Paul loved the church in Ephesus. He had devoted more time and energy in Ephesus than in any other church that he had planted. He cared about them deeply. And his motivation for wanting to stop these false teachers was his love for them. And he loved them enough to say, hey, cut it out. Okay, what you're doing is wrong. It needs to stop. You guys, we know and we understand that God disciplines those whom he loves, right? We as parents, okay, we discipline our children. We tell them to stop doing things that are harmful to themselves or, you know, their siblings as they maybe, maybe that's just my house. I don't know. Your siblings, they, your kids all get along together just fine, okay? Not in my house, okay? And we have to t- correct them and discipline because they are hurting themselves and they're hurting others, right? But why do we do it? Because we love them. And because we want what's best for them. Right? This was Paul's heart. 
He loved them and he wanted what was best for them. And so these false teachers needed to be corrected. They needed to be told to stop doing these things that were harmful to themselves and others within the body of Christ. Paul had this kind of heart, and he wanted this kind of heart for all in the church. He wanted them to know and experience this kind of love, the kind of love that came from a pure heart. A pure heart is devoted to God and free from guilt and corruption. A love that comes from a pure heart, it enables us to love freely. He wanted them to know the kind of love that came from a good conscience. If we're to love properly, our conscience must be clear. Our motives must be free from any sort of, you know, pride and or personal gain, okay? When we love from a good conscience, it enables us to love openly. And he wanted them to know the kind of love that came from sincere faith. Because church family, if we try to love people without faith, it inevitably will become a work of the flesh. And it will be doomed to failure, okay? When we love from a sincere faith, though, it enables us to love genuinely. And that was Paul's heart for the church. He wanted them to know the love of God from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith that they may love freely, openly, and genuinely. And unfortunately, this is not what they were experiencing under the tutelage of these false teachers. In verses 6 and 7, Paul contrasts his own purposes with the purposes of these false teachers. While Paul was motivated by love, these others were motivated by their own self-interest. Take a look at verse 6 and 7 with me. He says, From which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Here in these verses, Paul gives us five distinctions about these false teachers that separated them from everybody else. Number one, we see that these false teachers had strayed from the purpose of teaching. The purpose of teaching, as described by Paul, was love. He wanted the church to know and be built up in the love of God. But these people had strayed from the love of God. Now, the word stray is very important to understand. It does not mean, nor does it carry the idea of simply missing the mark. As if they had their sets set on honoring God and and they were set on loving God, but they just got off track. You know, they just kind of veered off. They strayed a little bit. That's not what this word means. Okay, when we use it in English, sometimes it might mean that. That's not what it means in the Greek. Okay, okay. This word means to not set the proper aim to begin with, okay? It wasn't that they were missing the mark that they were aiming for, but rather they were aiming for the wrong thing altogether. Instead of aiming for God's love, they were aiming over here, okay, for something totally different, okay? It wasn't that they had the right intentions, good intentions. They were looking for this. No, 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 no. And they just got a little bit, you know, sideways. No, no, no. They were completely aiming for something different. That's what this word stray means, okay? Their aim was not upon love. Their aim was not upon building up the body of Christ in love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. They weren't aiming for these things. They were aiming for something altogether different. Number two, we see that they turned aside to idle talk. Your translation may read meaningless talk or vain discussion or fruitless discussion. Uh, The King James Version uses the phrase vain jangling. And I don't know what that means, except for fruitless discussion, I imagine. Okay, meaningless discussion. Okay, this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament scriptures. The idea behind this word is that these false teachers focused all their attention on things that were meaningless and fruitless. They spent all their time talking about things that had no lasting impact. Okay? It did nothing to bring any sort of benefit, any sort of edification to others. These people evidently just loved to hear themselves speak because they would go on and on and on about things that made absolutely no sense and they were completely unproductive and useless. Number three, we see that these false teachers wanted to be teachers of the law. They wanted to have the position and the respect that came with being a teacher. They wanted to be seen as people of authority. Their intention behind teaching was not to elevate others and to benefit others, but to elevate and benefit themselves. They wanted positions of authority. They wanted to be known as teachers of the law. Now, 
Though we aren't told specifically the details of the false teacher's actual doctrine, many suggest that based upon their desire to be teachers of the law, that perhaps they were a group of people that had Jewish connections. Uh, we do know that at this time there were certain people going around that were known as Judaizers. Okay? Um, these were people that believed and taught that people were saved based upon a combination of faith and works, okay? which is basically legalism. Okay? When we talk about legalism, we're basically saying that salvation comes through faith and works. Okay? To tell people, hey, you shouldn't do that because the Bible says that, that's not legalism. That's, that's telling people the truth, okay? Legalism is when we say our salvation is based upon faith plus some sort of works, okay? That our standing before God is based upon our works. That's legalism, okay? But telling people something that the Bible says is not legalism. But these Judaizers, they went around and basically taught and believed that salvation was based upon faith plus works, and works that were basically living according to Jewish customs and following the law of Moses. In order to be saved, you had to have faith in Jesus, and you needed to follow the law of Moses, and you needed to be circumcised, and you needed to do these other things that Jewish customs uh, did. It could be that a group of Judaizers had infiltrated within the church and started spreading this heresy within the church of Ephesus. We don't know for sure, but it would seem to indicate something like that. Number four, we see that though they wanted to be teachers of the law, they didn't understand the law. Paul said that they didn't understand what they said whenever they talked about the law. These people wanted to be seen as authority figures and teachers of the law, but Paul who happened to be an expert in the law, right? He was brought up as a Pharisee, you know, trained under the, you know, some of the greatest teachers of the law. He was right up there, right? He knew the law. And, and Paul basically said and declared that when these people spoke and taught about the law, they made it clear that they had no idea what they were saying, okay? They didn't understand the law, nor did they understand the purpose of the law, which will get to shortly. And then number five, and finally, not only did they not understand what they were saying about the law, they failed to understand the impact of their teachings and what they were affirming by doing so. The idea here is that they were making assertions and proclamations from their teaching that would not be considered sound doctrine. It didn't balance itself out. What they were affirming didn't balance with the rest of what they claimed to be teaching. They would affirm things that would negate other things. Their own words would become contrary toward each other. These people were just saying stuff to say stuff. They didn't understand how to have a balanced view of Scripture. They contradicted themselves. They didn't understand that by affirming one doctrine, they were completely negating another doctrine. For example, try to make it more easy to understand, okay? It would be like saying, I believe in the Bible and that it's the authoritative word of God, but then at the same time affirming doctrines and practices that are clearly denounced in the scriptures, right? We can't say, oh, I believe in God's word and I believe that we should do what God's word says, but then we look at other practices and say, oh, but this is okay to do. And you don't realize that by affirming this, you're negating the fact that you say you believe this, Okay? They don't match. Okay? They, don't, they don't fit. They're not sound. Okay? And that's the idea. They were affirming things, not even realizing by affirming those things, they were negating the other things that they were trying to say. It was all messed up. In response to these false teachers' lack of knowledge regarding the law, Paul takes a few moments here at the end of our text to explain what the law is and what the purpose of the law is. We'll begin with Paul's simple understanding of the law in verse 8 before we get to the purpose of the law in verses 9 and 10. So read verse 8 with me. There, Paul says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, Paul starts off with an affirmation of the law. Now, when Paul says the law, he's referring to the Mosaic law. And here he clearly states that the law is in fact good. Okay? And this is something that we can clearly see from Scripture, not just here in Paul's writing to Timothy. Romans chapter 7 states the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. A few verses later, Paul states that the law is spiritual in Romans chapter 7 verse 14. Psalms 119 states that God's law is truth. And so we see that the law is good. It's 
It's holy. It is just. It's spiritual. It's true. These are all wonderful things. Hey, the law really is a, a picture of the Lord, for the Lord himself is good and holy and just and spiritual and true. But Paul puts a qualifying statement to his affirmation of the law. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. And the idea here is the law is good if we use it the way that it was intended to be used. If we don't use it the way it's supposed to be used, then it ceases to be good from our perspective. If we try to make the law be something or do something other than what it was intended to be or to do, then we make the goodness of the law go away. In fact, the law can then become a curse, according to Galatians chapter 3. The law then can become a burdensome yoke, according to Acts chapter 15 verse 10, a yoke that none of the Jews nor their fathers could bear. And so it then becomes vitally important that we know and understand the purpose of the law and that we don't make it be something or do something it was never intended to be or do. And Paul lets us know what the purpose of the law is and why God gave it to us in verses 9 and 10. Read them with me. Verse 9 says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Okay, the law was not made for the righteous person. If you are righteous, well, you have absolutely no need for the law. Because the law does nothing for you if you are righteous. Now that word righteous, it speaks of one who acts conformably to justice and right without any deficiency or failure. Jesus is the righteous one. And he is in fact the only righteous one. He is the only one who lived a perfect life in complete conformity to God's holy standards. We, however... Well, we are born into sin. Our nature is to rebel against God and against God's standards. We are sinners by nature who have fallen short of the glory of God, okay, his holy standard. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 tells us that. And so therefore the law is for us. Okay? It is for us, but we must understand the intent of the law. It wasn't made for the righteous, but the sinner. And why was it made for the sinner? Well, the book of Galatians lays it out for us. There Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. You see, the intent of the law was to bring us to Christ, to show us our need for a Savior, to show us how badly we have sinned against God, and to let us know that we owe a great debt to God, to let us know that we are in desperate need for God's forgiveness. The law is good. It is just. It is true. It is spiritual, and it is holy. But listen, it cannot make us good. It cannot make us just, holy, spiritual, or true. All it does for us is show us how short we fall from God's standard. And if we look to the law to try and save us, it will never do that. Because it was never intended to do that. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain, according to Paul. That's what he said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. Hebrews chapter 10 states, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of these things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Okay, the law can never make us perfect. It can never give us that righteous standing. This is when the law ceases to be good from our perspective. When we look to the law to try and make us righteous, or for it to be something that saves us, we are not using it as it's intended to be, and it no longer remains good for us. The law tells you and I that we are sinners. It tells us that the penalty of our sins is death and eternal separation from God. 
But if we allow the law to do what it was meant to do, to lead us to Christ, that we can find what we are looking for. For while the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For Jesus Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary, and he paid our debt for us. He took our sins upon himself, and he died in our place. He was taken down from that cross. He was buried in a tomb, only to rise from the grave three days later victoriously. And his victory over sin and death is a victory that he wants to share with you and me. We, too, can have victory over sin, not through following the law. That'll never work, okay? But through faith in Jesus Christ and his completed work upon the cross. For Ephesians makes it very clear that we are saved by grace through faith, that it's not of works lest anyone should boast. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We must understand that the law is powerless to save us. This false teachers that were coming around trying to be teachers of the law were perpetrating something that would never work. All the law can do is show us that we are sinners. And here in verses, the rest of verse 9 and verse 10, Paul identifies the types of people the law was intended for. And I'm not here to pop anybody's bubble here. But listen, we read through this, you might think, oh, these are really bad people. Listen, this is you and me. Okay? We are these people. <laughs> so let's not get high and mighty and think we're better than these people that are listed off here. <laughs> It was intended for the lawless and the insubordinate, the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, okay, that's murderers in general, okay, maybe not mothers and fathers, but just murderers, for fornicators, okay, a fornicator is those who engage in any sort of sexual immorality such as sex outside of marriage, engaging in pornography, okay, that would all fall under fornication, okay, for sodomites, okay, this word speaks of those who engage in homosexual activities, you know, today we live in a day and age where it's, we want to, you know, there's a push for accepting and churches and denominations are saying, yes, you know, it's okay to be homosexual, it's okay to, to live in that kind of a lifestyle, but yet it goes contrary to what God's scripture says, right? And we want to love people. We want to see everybody churn from sin, okay? Whether you're a sodomite or a liar, okay? We're all the same. <laughs> We're all sinners falling short of the glory of God, and we all want to find a place that we can be forgiven and, and, and to grow, right? But it's very clear that this is not something that we should be celebrating, that we should be saying, oh, it's okay now. The church, God changed his mind on this matter, and now it's okay. No, it's not. Right? For kidnappers, okay, the idea here is those who steal people to make them slaves. It's basically referring to human trafficking. Um, for liars, for perjurers, okay, they're not exactly the same thing. Perjurers, those who give false witness. And for anyone or anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine, okay? You know, it's interesting to consider Paul's list here. He makes similar lists in a number of his epistles, but as you look at this list, you see a parallel between it and God's Ten Commandments. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. Okay? We, are to love, uh, we are to have no God before the Lord. We're not to make idols. Okay? We're not to take the Lord's name in vain. And we're not, uh, we are to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And the first sets of persons that Paul lists out are people that are living contrary to those first four commandments. The lawless, the insubordinate, the ungodly, the unholy, and the profane. They despise God. They make themselves out to be their own gods. And then the last six commandments deal with our relationships with one another. We're to honor our parents. We're not to murder, we're not to commit adultery, not to steal, nor to lie or bear false witness. And lastly, we're not to covet, which basically means we're not to take pleasure in or desire or lust after things that don't belong to us. It's a general uh, statement there. But 
And we see Paul's list here focuses in upon these kinds of people here as well. As he speaks of murderers of fathers and mothers, they would be in opposition to the fifth commandment. They're not honoring mom and dad if they're murdering mom and dad, right? Uh, Manslayers would be in opposition to the sixth commandment. Fornicators and sodomites would be in opposition to the seventh commandment. Kidnappers, the stealing away of people would be probably the greatest sin against the eighth commandment against stealing. Liars and perjurers live in opposition to the ninth commandment, and anything else that's contrary to sound doctrine, I think we could even point to that, uh, that to the tenth commandment of wanting something that we shouldn't have, or wanting something other than that which is part of sound doctrine. And so we see the Ten Commandments, they're a good litmus test for us, if you will, just to see how much we fall short when it comes to God's holy standards, okay? We pretty much broken every single one of God's Ten Commandments at one time or another. There's a ministry out there called Living Water. They go around and they uh, do street evangelism, and they like to do what's called the good person test. I don't know if you've heard it before. But they'll go up to people and they ask, hey, do you think you're a good person? And, And just try and engage people. And most of the time, people are like, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. It's like, okay, you know, well, you think you're going to go to, you know, heaven? Well, I don't know if I believe in heaven. Well, if there was a heaven, would you go to heaven? Yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person. I think I'd make it in, right? And so it's okay, well, let's, let's ask you some simple questions, you know, to think if you're good, you know, based upon God's standard. Let's go to the Ten Commandments. Most people are somewhat familiar with that. And they'll ask, well, you know, have you ever lied before? And most people will be honest and say, yeah, uh, I've lied before, you know. Okay, have you ever stolen anything before? Doesn't matter how great of a value, you know, it could be something really insignificant. Have you ever stolen anything? Yeah, I've stolen that, you know. Have you ever committed adultery? Jesus said if you look at this person with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So have you ever done that? And he basically walks them through and says, look, you've fallen short in every single one of God's Ten Commandments. And yet you think you're a good person, you know. But that's how we think of ourselves. We think we're pretty good, right? But the fact is, we're all guilty sinners, Okay, we've, we've all guilty. We're all in need of the grace of God that's offered to us through God's one and only begotten Son. We're all in the same position. Jesus Christ offers to us His grace, His forgiveness, and His righteousness if we would simply submit our lives to Him in faith. And that's the glorious gospel message that we believe in, which brings us to our final verse in our study this morning. Verse 11, read it with me. Paul continues... Speaking about if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. The word gospel, I'm sure most of you know this, but the word gospel means good news. Okay, that's the simple uh, definition of the word if you look at the Greek roots. Okay? But the good news is only understood in light of the bad news. You see, the bad news is that we've all, we've broken every single one of God's commandments to us. Now, some of you may object and you think to yourself, well, I've never done this or I've never done that, right? But let me tell you what James says, okay? James writes in James chapter 2, verse 10, he says, forever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all, okay? So you might be able to go through and say, oh, that one, I've never done that one. I've done all the other ones, but I haven't done that one. Well, God's Word tells us if you've done one, you're guilty of all of them, okay? And as a result, we must pay the wages of our sin, which is death. Listen, that's the bad news. Okay, the bad news is we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there's nothing that we can do to undo that in and of our own strength. We are bound to spend eternity apart from God in a place called hell. Let me tell you something. That is really, really bad news, okay? But okay, the good news is that Jesus Christ paid the price for you so that you don't have to pay the price for your sins. He took your sins upon himself and he died in your place. And he offers to us his righteousness. His righteous standing before God the Father can be ours if we confess our sins and turn to him in faith. 
This is the glorious good news of the gospel. And this was something that had been entrusted to Paul as an apostle of Christ as, and also as a recipient himself of the gospel. And let me tell you something, church family. It is something that has been entrusted to us as well as recipients of the gospel. If you are here this morning okay, and you have responded to the gospel of grace. And I look out and I know a lot of you guys are believers and you're walking with the Lord. You've responded to the gospel. Then you too have been entrusted with this sacred truth. And we have a responsibility to share it and to make sure that it continues to be proclaimed to the world around us and in our families and in our churches. You know, many people don't like to hear about sin, hell, and judgment, okay? They don't like the bad news, okay? And I'll be honest with you. I don't like teaching the bad news, okay? Because you guys get all like this. <laughs> but we need the bad news. Without the bad news, the good news isn't so good. But when we understand just how bad the bad news is, whoo, it makes the good news really, really good, Okay? People want to hear about love, grace, and forgiveness. They want to hear the good news. I want to hear the good news, too. I like teaching about those things. Listen, they need to go hand in hand. This message has been entrusted to us that we may share it with the world around us. May we be faithful to do so. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your gospel of grace. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, Lord, that... You have freely offered to us, Lord. You won that victory uh, over sin and death, Lord. You rose victoriously, Lord, and you've offered to us that victory. You've offered to us your righteous standard because our righteous standard means nothing, Lord. We could not measure up. We are lost in our sins, Lord. We fall so short, and Lord, it is only by your grace and only because of your love for us that we have an opportunity to have our sins forgiven. We have an opportunity to be redeemed, to have your righteousness put into our account, that we might stand before the Lord, that we might have a place in eternity with you in heaven. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your gospel. Lord, I pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel. Lord, that we would understand and know that it is the power of God to salvation and that we would boldly proclaim it, especially in opposition to those who would falsely claim that we need to be saved by works, that we need to be going around doing things to earn or merit your favor. God, that is not what your scriptures tell us. That is not the gospel news. That is not a gospel at all. That is not good news. And so, Lord, I pray that we would boldly stand upon your gospel message of grace, and I pray that we wouldn't just uh, hog it to ourselves, but that we would share it with the world around us. Lead us and guide us in that endeavor. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.